Today we're continuing our series in the letter of James. And last week, Laura kicked us off in chapter one, where James repeatedly mentions this little phrase, do it. And I loved how that came up in chapter two in our reading, and Uche underlined it. The Christian faith is a bit like the Nike motto, or rather the Nike motto is a bit like the Christian faith, just do it. I once spoke at a conference some years ago, and uh, it was a large conference. There were thousands of people there, actually, and at the end of the sermon, people wanted to come and look at my waistcoat, and so hundreds of people responded to the appeal, and uh, they all gathered at the front and opened their hands, and we prayed for them, and we had ministry, and it was a jolly old time. And then afterwards, back at the leaders' lounge, there was uh, another speaker who was present called Bishop Zach from Uganda. And he came over to me and he said, what was all that at the end? I said, that was a response to my sermon. That was the ministry time. He said, but what, what's all this? I said, they're receiving. They're receiving from God because blessing them. And he said, and I've never forgotten, he said, they've already received. Just imagine, he said, what those 500 people who came forward could do if they did something. I said, well, hopefully they're going to come and receive in order to go and do something. But I never forgot that. Just imagine what could happen if having received, we actually went out there and did something with what God had said and what God had imparted. Now, James is about practical Christianity. And his fundamental thesis is this, that faith in Jesus is outworked. It's not simply what God has worked in us. It's something that works out of us. And in a practical and tangible and visible and demonstrable way, our faith is evidenced in what we do. In our reading in chapter 2, and you might like to turn to it on your phones or if you've got a paper version, chapter 2, we're, we're looking at verses 14 to 21, but the flow of the argument in James, a bit like jazz, it kind of spirals back, so we're going to flick back a bit too. But essentially, what James is about is this, that creeds lead to deeds. What we believe is cashed out and revealed and benefits others in what we do. Let's just look at a few of these verses. I'm just going to sum them up together. Verse 14, faith without works, doing it, is useless. Verse 17, faith without works is dead. Verse 18, faith is proved by works. Verse 19, even the demons have faith but don't have works. Verse 20, faith without works is useless. Verse 26, faith without works is dead. And then James illustrates with Abraham and then the prostitute Rahab, showing that they had faith in God, but the faith in God was proven by what they did. Creeds must lead to deeds. As I've been preparing this the latter part of this week, I've been thinking about the seven dwarfs, like one does. Hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work 
we go. Off to work, we go. But we're not out there looking for treasure. We're out there placing the treasure that God has put in our lives. But what is the work? I've got two points. Firstly, we're to work at loving our neighbor. Loving our neighbor. Verse 8 of chapter 2. You do well if you really fulfill, if you really do the royal law. According to Scripture, says James, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. What are we to do? We're to love our neighbor. And love is not an emotion, a feeling, a sentiment. In Scripture, love is what we do. Love is seen. It's visible. It's expressed. Verse 15. If a brother or sister is naked and lacks daily food, verse 16, and one of you says to them, go in peace, keep warm, eat your fill, and yet you do not supply their bodily needs, what good is that? A fat lot of good, really. It seems there's a problem in the community that James is writing to. The poor, I think, are present in the church, but absent in people's thinking. They're present, but they are not seen. They're present, but they're not looked after, looked at, and cared for. And there is the odd bless you, but the bless you is empty. What they need is blessing, not someone saying bless you. That blessing needs to be practical. The theologian Professor David says, the church will be judged by the cry of the poor in their midst. Who say, you sing this, you say this, but you don't practice it. You lie. Loving our neighbor, as I said, is not a sentiment. And Christianity, and bless you, must be more than lip service. Loving our neighbor means that we see them in their need, that we lean to them in their need. One of the extraordinary features of the first church, the earliest church at Pentecost, when they were in full flush, as it were, of the power of the Holy Spirit, is that immediately we see charity. What was the mark of the Spirit upon the church? Yeah, they spoke in tongues. Yes, they praised God. Yes, there was much grace upon them. But as they expressed their faith amongst one another... They were seen to be those who were charitable. In Acts 2, it says, they held everything in common and they sold their possessions to share with anyone who had a need. This isn't communism where the state owns everything. It's community where they care and they see and they share. In chapter 4, no one among them lacks anything. Chapter 5, folk gave money from land that they sold to be distributed to the poor. Chapter 6, they ordained seven deacons to oversee daily distribution of food to the poor. The early church, one of the hallmarks, evidences, is there is this grace of giving. That they cared for the poor, and the poor were poor no more. I was reading this week, like you do, um, the second century didiscalia. And uh, it's a kind of rule of how to do church 
in the second century. And it was interesting what it said the job of a bishop was. Really interesting. It said they are to receive all the charitable gifts and give them away to the poor. They are to receive the gifts and identify the need and meet the need with the gifts that have been given. In particular, it emphasizes the widows and the orphans. And that's a particular emphasis here in James. Indeed, I think that one of the key verses to understand the letter of James is verse chapter 127. Pure and undefiled religion before God the Father is this. Visit orphans and widows in their trouble and keep yourself unspotted from the world. Oregon in the second century said, let the poor person be provided with food from the self-denial of the one who fasts. It doesn't assume that they've got a surfeit of food, that they got extra. It assumes they're going to go without so that the person without can go and eat. And it's remarkable to me that the historian Michel Riquet calculated that in Rome in 250 AD, under Pope Cornelius, 10,000 Christians were fasting. A hundred days a year each, every third day. They went without food, and they provided the poor with over a million meals a year. I mean, just think about that. This isn't just 10%. This isn't just skimming a bit off the top. This is going without to give to those who are completely without. And this was the mark of the early church. No wonder it spread so rapidly. Yes, the glory of the gospel heralded, but then the evidence of the gospel demonstrated in people's lives. I've always been inspired by friend of mine called David Ruiz. I've told this before. The David Ruiz, the rooster, some of you will have heard of the name. He wrote some great songs back in the day. Remember, I will worship, I will worship, you know, and all of that. And uh, he wrote, let your glory fall in this place and let it go forth from here to the nations. Remember that? Some of you remember it. I know you do. And I'm not going to sing it. But you know what, he wrote that, and it, it, they, they were the biggest selling songs in the year that they came out. And uh, there's money in them songs, and he made a million dollars on one of those songs. And I remember when he came here, he came, he did a, a, an event for us, and I asked, his, um, I asked his tour manager, I said, what's he like? I mean, he was a mate of mine from conferences, but you really know someone you travel around the country with. I said, what's he really like? He said, he is the real deal. I said, go on then. In what way? He said, well, he made a million on that song. I said, oh, gosh, I'm in the wrong profession. No, I didn't say that. <laughs> I said, really? He said he gave every penny to the poor. Money talks. He's got tattoos all over him. <laughs> on this arm. He's got the Hebrew word mishpat. That means justice or, or mercy. And here, he's got a tattoo. It says, remember the poor. Except the letter R is round here, so it says, remember the poo. But <laughs> apart from that, remember the poor. And he remembers the poor. He was telling me he was preaching in India. 
and he was preaching to a Christian community and they were the untouchables. They were the lowest of the low. They were all brown. All their clothes were sort of bleached by the sun and covered in filth and they were just all brown, their clothes. And their church was a tin shack and they sat on the mud. And in the morning he said, Lord, what am I going to teach him? And the Lord said, give him your life message. He said, what, remember the poor? They are the poor. The Lord said, you tell them, remember the poor. So he preaches a message to the poorest people he'd ever met, remember the poor. And he said, as he was preaching, they were all weeping. And then after the service, rushed to try and give away what they had, because there's always someone poorer. Staggering, really. So often I want to get more, and I want to accumulate stuff. But the Christian way is to give it away. And James says, remember the poor. Love your neighbor. And love your neighbor means lean in to the poor. And James is actually concerned in this chapter that the church is leaning the wrong way. They're actually leaning towards the rich. And so at the beginning of chapter 2, he says, brothers and sisters, do you with your acts of favoritism really believe in the Lord Jesus? If you show preference against a poor person towards a rich person who comes into the synagogue at that time, the church had not yet divided into a separate community, but were worshiping in the, syn- worshiping in the synagogue. He said, if someone comes in wearing a gold ring, a symbol of office in those days, you know, a seal engraved ring, a position of power. He says, if, if you honor the wealthy with the best seat and hide a poor person at the back, or make them stand or sit at your feet. He says, verse 4, your judgment and your thinking is evil. I don't think he's just plucking it out of thin air. I think this is what's going on in the church. There was a bias. There was a leaning. There was a, a fating of those who were well off. And you know, God is the only being in the universe who can stand aloof, who can stand apart, who can stand superior. And yet, for our sakes, he becomes poor that we might be rich. And he came to preach the good news to the poor. And he said that the kingdom of God belongs to the poor. And if you want to be on the wrong side of God, then you lean towards the rich and not the poor. God is a great snob snubber. He hates snobs. Some time ago, the former Archbishop Rome Williams came to our church and spoke. It was a beautiful evening. He's a beautiful man. And all the towns, great and good, came out because the Archbishop was here. And um, just before the start of the service, I was sat at the front, you know, a vicar, but also the doorman. And um, in came a bag lady. And in she came and she saw the archbishop and she made a move for him. And I quickly went up to this bag lady and said, you come and sit with me, you know, come and sit next to me. And uh, bless her. You know, she looked like a scarecrow. She had all her worldly goods in the carrier bags. And honestly, she smelt. And then at the peace, the archbishop came over to her and said, hello, Anne, how are you? It's been a long time. 
He had been a professor here 20 years before that. And he engaged with her, and he blessed her, and he was tender to her. And clearly, he had made a connection with her when he was a prof over the road. The Archbishop of Canterbury showing preferential treatment and bias towards the lowliest and probably the most needy in the church. I'll never forget that. All the good and the great turned out in their finery, but the ABC goes over to the needy lady. So, hi-ho, hi-ho, it's off to work we go. What is the work? We're there to give the treasure, not to mine it for ourselves. We're there to be a blessing. We're there to love our neighbor, and we're there to lean to the poor. That's the first thing. Second is going to be shorter. Secondly, we've got to work at not loving the world. Again, back in 127, which is, I think, the thesis for the whole letter, he says this pure and undefiled religion, true religion, is to keep ourselves untainted, unspotted by the world. And later on in 4, verse 4, he says, friendship with the world is enmity towards God. It's a strange thing. What is the world he's referring to? How can you love your neighbor, but at the same time also disdain the world? Well, when James is talking about the world, he's not talking about people. God so loved the world, people, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him wouldn't perish, but would have everlasting life. God loves the world. He's not talking about creation that God made, which he looked at and saw was good and gave us the responsibility of nurturing and caring and tending for. No, the world here represents that kind of antichrist system. And the structures and the values and the ethics, the, if you like, the city of this world as over the city of God. The kingdom of this world. Jesus said, this is not my world. He said, if the world hates me, it'll hate you also. And the Christian, whilst leaning into the world, leaning towards the poor, must lean away from the things of this world. My family were for several generations in the exclusive Brethren Church, all the way through the late Victorian and then into the 1960s. Exclusive Brethren, Plymouth Brethren. And at the core of that concept, an expression of their religion was come away from the world. And uh, that actually, whilst biblical, theologically, it took on kind of strange practices. And um, so their churches would have frosted windows or no windows at all because they didn't want the people in church looking out and the people outside the church to come in. You, you couldn't join the church. And uh, they wouldn't live in semi-detached houses because they didn't want to live next to someone who was in the world. And um, they obviously weren't allowed to marry someone outside of the brethren. And they weren't even allowed to eat meals, sat down with those outside. Uh, because they were afraid they were going to be tainted by the world. And it became a kind of religious neurosis, a fear of contamination. My family grew up in it, and they were leaders in it, uh, pre-war and post-war. And uh, then after three generations, they left. Um, it came about because my granddad, who was one of the presiding elders, there was a discussion on whether someone's house maid to these two old spinster ladies could have a radio. And my granddad said, 
They can have a radio if they're not brethren, if they're just cleaning the house up. Um, but the brethren can't have a radio. No radio, no TV. And they thought my granddad was worldly, so they silenced him, and he thought, forget that. And he left. And, um, but my mum stayed in. But, you know, here's the thing. My mum, dear elderly lady now, she was remarkable. Very brilliant, uh, very successful businesswoman and involved in politics, a county councillor. She was a mayor twice. And it was always a surprise to me that she failed her 11 plus, went to a secondary modern and left without any qualifications. And uh, I said to her a while ago, I said, Mum, how come you failed the 11 plus? You're so smart. You're an accountant and you're all, all of this. And she said, well, I remember turning the paper over and it said, write an essay describing your favorite TV or radio personality. She was 11 then. She'd never seen a TV, never heard a radio. She didn't until she met my dad when she was 19. Amazing, really. And bonkers. I mean, that's nuts. That's not holiness, that's silliness. You can't love your neighbor if you keep a distance. You can't love your neighbor if you're separated from them. You can hate the things of this world that are antithetical to the kingdom of heaven, but you've got to love your neighbor and lean in. Jesus never intended to create a church that cut itself off from society. He was a friend of tax collectors and sinners. So when we read here James' critique, as it were, of the world, we don't, and must never think people. And we must never think have nothing to do with it. On the contrary, Jesus' form of holiness is not separation, but advance. You're the salt of the earth. For salt to work, it's got to be in the food. You're the light of the world, he says. For light to make any difference, it's got to be in the context of darkness to dispel it. But James says, be untainted by the world. Literally, well, the Greek word is aspilos. It means a meaning without and spilos meaning a spot or a stain. And it's a moral category. It's a moral category. I got a visual aid. How about that? I recently bought a new frying pan. My beloved wife, Tiffany, said, our frying pan's too old and rubbish. So I went and bought a new one. How about that? Completely epic. <laughs> Cost me an absolute fortune. And um, different from others, I mean, it was handmade and uh, cast iron and enameled and just beautiful hand-finished handle. Completely wonderful. Only it don't work. The problem may be with my cooking, but I fear it's not. And the thing is, everything sticks to it. <laughs> everything. You can still see stuff stuck on it that I couldn't scrape off. <laughs> Things stick to it. And as Christians, sometimes we're like this frying pan. We're in the world and things stick to us. And the world sticks to us. And we get all encrusted with the stuff of the world when it should be the other way. Christians should be sticky. Not having the world stuck to them, but in the world and all the goodness of God 
and his values and his graces flowing out of us and leaving that where we find it. A few years ago, George Barna did a survey of thousands of Christians in North America. I'm sure it's true here in England. And he found that the ethics, the values, the lifestyle, the moral outworking, the use of money, the percentage of giving to charity, everything, every quotient that was put down was exactly the same for those in the church and those out the church. There was no difference whatsoever. And James challenges us. He says, listen, it's not just what you believe. It's not enough to come to church and sing. It's how you behave and how you live outside of the church. It's what you do. And he calls us to be holy. And holy isn't separation and withdrawal. It is advance into society at every level to bless it, to leave something good there, loving our neighbor, shaping society structures, social and cultural, intellectual, financial, political, whatever it is, we've got to be in it to win it. In it, holy, leaning away from the world, but leaning into our neighbor and leaving good there. The values of the kingdom. No seven dwarfs, I owe, I owe, it's off to work we go. Tomorrow morning, it's off to work we go. How are we going to go off to work? We're not just in it to get out of it. We're those who are there to leave treasure. Amen.